2 Samuel chapter 23, title of this message comes from the great theologian Paul McCartney and John Lennon, I get by with a little help from my friends. Last week we showed you our VBS video, just the highlights of everything that God did uh, this year at VBS. And we saw over 200 kids make first-time professions of faith uh, in Jesus Christ. We saw 70-some-odd kids uh, make rededications to the Lord Jesus. And it was just amazing. And what I hope you caught from that video uh, is, is that in doing his work, God used people. In fact, he used quite a lot of people to serve him and, and to do his work. And that's the way that God always works. God works through men. He works through women. This is the system that he has instilled here on the earth. He always is working divinely and supernaturally through men and through women. When God wanted to reach the people of Nineveh, he used a man, Jonah even though Jonah wasn't always willing uh, to go initially. We ran in the opposite direction. Some of y'all, we invite you to serve in, in you know, children's ministry, summer sub. You want to run in the opposite direction. You like how he slid that in right there? How he worked that. But God, hey, he wanted to reach the people of Nineveh, and he used Jonah. When he wanted to reach the people of Ethiopia, uh, God used Philip, who was doing a great work in Samaria, and God diverted him, took him down a desert road, and, and took him to, to meet with one man, the Ethiopian eunuch, who was a, who was a high-placed official in the, in the nation of Ethiopia. And God sent Philip to that man so that he could, through that man, reach the nation of Ethiopia. When God wanted to reach Cornelius and his household, he used Peter. God always using men and women, this is the way that he set it up. You look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1, and Luke there, as he's authoring this book, he says, in my former work, speaking of the gospel of Luke, I told you about all that Jesus Christ began both to do and to teach. That word began, very significant, and the entire book of Acts hinges on that one word. That Jesus Christ's work began with him and his coming down and the gospel message that he preached, but his work continues, and it is to continue through men and women, through you and me, we being the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Again, the implication is that Jesus continues to work through us. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He said, as you come to him... Jesus Christ, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, every single one of us has a role to play in the building of God's kingdom. And that's the big idea of this section of 2 Samuel chapter 23 that we come to today. As we come here, the focus now shifts to acknowledge the men whom God used to help David in the building and establishing of his kingdom. We left off in verse 5 where David's sharing his heart. 
And he's just been talking about how God raised him up and about how, uh, you know, he needs to rule over the people. And, and he says, although my house is not so with God, yet he is made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my desire, uh, all my salvation and all my desire. Peter says, look, even though I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, even though I'm not the best guy in the world and I'm not without sin, God uses me and has used me. And he's praising God for the faithfulness of his covenant, that God is faithful. He's acknowledging God. Look, I'm not always faithful, but you are faithful. And I thank God that you're faithful and that you are a keeper of covenants and that you have made a covenant with me. This is his idea. But, he says now in verse 6, the sons of rebellion shall all be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. Now, the idea that David is conveying here is that the covenant was based on God's faithfulness, but what David is acknowledging here and what he understands is that man's faithfulness matters too. Our faithfulness to serve God, it matters as well. Yes, there's God's part, but there's also our part. And David describes it here as a war. You know, on the one side, you have the sons of rebellion, and on the other side, you have men who stand in opposition to them. And the question isn't, will you and I battle against rebellion? That's not the question. Here's the question. The question is, how can we be victorious in this battle against rebellion? And our first point, if you're taking notes, you can write it down. A faithful man must take the lead. A faithful man must take the lead. Now we see this in David and we looked at it last week. He says there in verse one, these are the last words of David, the last inspired words. He says, and he begins, thus says David, the son of Jesse, hey, I'm a humble man. I came from humble beginnings. I didn't have this long pedigree. God chose a nothing and he chose a nobody. And that's who I am, David would say. But he says, thus says the man raised up on high. God raised me up. God took me, God raised me up. And he then says, the anointed of the God of Jacob. Listen, God, not only did he raise me up, but he poured his Holy Spirit out on me. He anointed me. And the sweet psalmist of Israel. Again, he's just talking about how God had gifted him. And I'm just, this is who I am. This is how God's gifted me. He raised me up. He anointed me. And he's using me in my gifts. And David, unashamedly, he stepped into the role of leader. Sir Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And what happens here, this is the situation before David showed up, before David came on the scene. There was a a leadership vacuum in the land of Israel. It It was a time when everybody did, the Bible says, what was right in their own eyes. And for a brief time, Saul stepped in. He filled that vacuum. But what happened with Saul is that he forgot over time who he was in in God. 
And so he began to believe all of his own press clippings that went to his head. He began to be puffed up. He began to rule in disobedience uh, to God. And so God then called and anointed David, and David took a stand. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 17 where David comes into his prominence. Here he is. He's just faithfully serving in his father's house. Samuel shows up. He anoints him with oil says, you are the future king of Israel. And his father, Jesse, promptly says to him, now get back out in the field with the sheep. And sometimes that's the way it is for us. That God might show up in a mighty way, in a powerful way in our lives, and he might just pour his spirit out upon you, and you know that you were made for greater things. You know that God's hand is upon you. You know that he's called you. And all of a sudden, no, your phone ain't ringing, your emails aren't coming in, everybody's not beating a path to your door. What's happening is you are leading a humble existence. The Bible says, as we're faithful in little, God will make us faithful in much. And David was faithful in little. He there stayed in his father's house. He stayed faithfully tending his father's sheep. As his brothers all went off to, to battle and to do the more glorious things, he stayed home and did the more humble things. But the Bible says that a man's gift makes room for him and brings him before kings. And David's gift made room for him. And so he brings some cheese and some supplies down to his brothers and to the the forces in battle. He's just going as a lowly errand boy. He gets there. His brothers are mocking him. They're making fun of him. But what are his brothers doing at that point? They, along with the rest of the nation of Israel, are quaking before Goliath. And the forces there that are amassed against them. And they're not, they're all dressed up with no place to go. You know, they're all, you know, made up like they're going into the battle, but they're really not fighting a battle. So often that describes us. So often that describes the American church. To where we're all dressed up in battle array, but we're really not doing anything to engage the enemy. And meanwhile, the enemy's there just mocking taunting. And so David there, he goes and he shows up and he can't believe what's happening here. And, and so David takes action and he, and he goes against and he fights Goliath. Matter of fact, turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And we see David taking a stand against Goliath here. Now, when David did this, he inspired his followers for one key reason. There's one key reason that David inspired the people to follow him with the actions that he would take. And here's that reason. Israel knew about their God, but David knew his God. And we see there in 1 Samuel chapter 17, beginning in verse 33... David has shown up, he's seen what's going on with Goliath, and David opens his mouth and says, hey, someone needs to do something about this guy, and I think I'm the guy. So, so let me at him, kind of thing. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. Look, you're just a runt, a runt. you're the runt of the litter, you know, you're just some errand boy. And this guy's been killing people since he was a boy. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. 
And when a lion or bear came and took a lamb out of its flock, I went out, out, out of the flock, I went out after it and I struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. And when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and I struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. And not content just to say that, moreover, David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. You see, what happens here is that David knew his God. David had experienced walking with the Lord and it showed up in his character. It showed up in his actions. He put his money where his mouth was. And the remarkable relationship with God that David had is the reason why, why David was Israel's greatest king. Because he was inspired by God to take a stand. Let me ask you a question. Are you inspired by God to take a stand? Have you, like David, experienced God showing up and being faithful in your life? Maybe you, like David, have, had, have been in a season... Where you've done things that have been seemingly insignificant, seemingly small, but they have been faithful in the service of God. Listen, God sees, God knows. Good grief. (laughs) Put on with vice grips right there. David took a stand. He took a stand because God had showed him that God was faithful that God would see him through. And, and he, by taking this stand, he inspired others to follow him. He took the lead and others stepped in to follow. Skip ahead there in chapter 17 to verse 51. It says, uh, you know, therefore David ran. He stood over the Philistine. He's, he's got the slingshot through the rock, sunk it into his forehead. And it says he took his sword and he drew it out of its sheath, meaning Goliath's sword, and he killed him and he cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Here's what I want you to see, verse 52. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted. What had they been doing prior to this? Nothing. They had not been engaged in the fight as they should have been. They needed a leader. And I can go off on a tangent on this and just say, The major problem with America is that we have lost God and we have no leader in America. We are lacking, we are missing someone who's going to stand up and lead. Well, David stands up and he leads and now the men of Israel and Judah, they arose and they shouted and they pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley to the gates of Ekron and the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Shiram even as far as Gath and Ekron, and then the children of Israel, notice this, returned from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their tents. Listen, these guys who had been doing nothing once David did something, once you had a godly man who was going to step up and lead, he inspired the people to follow after him. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, many cowards are skulking about, try to shame them. Many are undecided, 
let them see a brave man. And he will be the standard bearer around whom they will rally. Listen, this world needs a brave man to stand up and lead. Your family needs a brave man to stand up and lead. Your workplace needs a brave man to stand up and lead. And God wants to call you right now before him and say, are you being that man? Are you being that woman? Are you going to, like David, are you going to stand up and lead? A faithful man has to take the lead, and David takes the lead. And again, the question isn't, will you battle against rebellion? The question is, how can you be victorious in battling against rebellion? And not only does this require that a faithful man step up and lead, but secondly, if you're taking notes, you could write it down, faithful men must follow. Faithful men must follow. Back in 2 Samuel, we begin in verse 8. It says, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Now, for the remainder of this chapter, we're just going to go through a list of mighty men. And the way I want to tackle this with you is I want to read through it, just kind of comment on a few things, but then I want to come back and dial into a couple of these guys, okay? So what's happening here is God is saying, look, take note, I want to highlight for you some mighty men. And I just want to throw this out in the front. Listen, sometimes we work in obscurity. Sometimes the things that we do to follow and to serve our Lord Nobody ever sees, but God sees. And God says of these faithful men, listen, I want to write their names. I want to record their names in my my word because I saw what they did and they're mighty men. And I want the world to know. And so he says, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josh, (laughs) here we go, and I'm going to mispronounce most of them. Joseph Bathshebeth, the Tachmanite, Chief among the captains, he was called Adino the Enzite because he had killed 800 men at one time. They gave him, they gave him this, this, this nickname, Adino the Enzite. Now, this is a complicated translation. Uh, basically, uh, Adino kind of means like, you know, uh, sort of like, a, like an example or sort of like a, 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 a token or, a, or an, you know, an emblem, some sort of a, of a, of a monument kind of thing. Uh, and and Enzite, it, it, I guess the best way you could describe that is sharp spear. And so this is sort of this nickname that they gave to this guy. I heard about a, a, a platoon in Vietnam. They had a, a machine gunner who carried a 50 cal machine gun and they gave this guy the nickname uh, Buzzsaw because of the way that he used his weapon to, to take care of the, the people, and it was like a buzzsaw cutting through the enemy. And so this is kind of the idea here. And so you've got this guy. He killed 800 men at one time in battle. Verse 9, And after him was Eleazar, the son of, of Dodo, uh, pronounced, I think, Dudu, uh, and uh, it's actually an affectionate term, the uh, Ahoite, uh, one of the three mighty men uh, with David uh, when they defeated the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel had retreated. 
He arose and he attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. His, his muscles in his hand were contracted around the sword. He couldn't let go of the sword. That's how this guy had fought. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. And after him was Shema, the son of, of Agi, the Herorite, The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils, so the people fled uh, from the Philistines. And uh, so here you have a guy who, uh, it, it says, verse 12, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, he defended it, and he killed the Philistines, and so the Lord brought about a great Victory. Listen, this man took his stand alone. And sometimes you, in your battle and fighting against unrighteousness, you're fighting against the forces of evil. You're fighting to be a godly man, a godly woman, to take your stand. Sometimes you're going to have to stand alone for righteousness. Again, Charles Spurgeon, he said this, Solitary prowess is expected of believers. I hope we may breed in this place a race of men and women who know the truth and know also what the Lord claims at their hands and are resolved by the help of the Holy Spirit to war a good warfare for their Lord when, uh, whether others will stand at their side or no. Sometimes you have to be the, the only person that's going to take a stand. I remember years ago, and this is to my shame, I was in the fire department. And we were dispatched to this gal's house, and this gal was at the end of the ro- her rope. She tried to commit suicide. Her house was a mess. She had just been, you know, forsaken, and she was a mess. And we're there, and the cops are there, and they've hooked her up. They've put her under a 5150, and we're, we're transporting her now pretty much against her will. And standing there in this room full of, you know, cops and firemen... There I am, and this gal is screaming out, and she says, where are you, God? And at that moment, I had an opportunity that I could have stood out. I could have been the only one to stand and say, listen, God's right here. And to my shame, I didn't stand up. I didn't stand up. I didn't say anything. I was young in my faith, and I was afraid to be belittled and ridiculed by the cops and firemen and all these tough guys that were in the room, and I didn't want to be the guy that was going to say, hey, listen, God's right here, let me pray for you. I'll take that to my grave. Sometimes God wants you to be the only one that's going to stand up and say, you know what, I'm going to take a stand. I'm reminded of the words of the old hymn, dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, Dare to make it known. This guy, he stood. He got up, he stood, he stood in that, in that field. He stationed himself there and the Lord brought about a great victory. Verse 13, then three of the 30, chief men went down at harvest time and they came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines encamped in the, in the valley of Rephraim. 
And David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Now, this isn't an order. David's not saying, hey, some of y'all need to go do this for me. He's just, this is just the, 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 the mutterings of his heart. This is, this is just David saying, oh, you know, I, 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 just, I just wish, you know, I wish this. I wish that I, that I could have this drink. He, he's, he's, he's thinking about water near a well, near his boyhood home. And he now hiding in the cave and, and the, the, the Philistines there, they've got the, 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 they've taken over this area where the, the, the water, the well was. And so it's held by enemy forces. And so he just has this thought. And so it says in verse 16, the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines. The way that's phrased there means they battled to go into enemy stronghold territory. And it says they drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and they took it and they brought it to David. These are the kind of guys that, that are there. You know, they're, they're just, and, and it says they're just some anonymous group. It, it doesn't name them. It just says three mighty men. They just went and they did this and they broke through. And, and notice what David does. It says, nevertheless, he would not drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. You, you know, at first reading, you read that and you're thinking, man, I just went through, you know, all kinds of hand-to-hand combat, went into the hornet's nest, and, and here you go, David, here's some water. And he's like, Bloop. you're like, what did I just do, right? That's not the attitude at all. David, as he pours it out, it says, and he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. And what were these three mighty men? Listen, they were close enough to David to hear the longing of his heart. He's just, he's just talking to himself. Oh man, I missed that well. It's in my hometown. And they immediately took action. Sometimes we'll have people that will come to us you know, here, and, and they'll say, look, look, I, I'm here. I'm here to help. Just whatever you need, just, just, just ask me. Just, 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 just tell me what you need, and I'll help. And we, we appreciate that heart. But I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what happens more often than not, and, and this is my word to, to guys that want to be in the ministry. I say, look, you know, to, they say, hey, I want to be around. And I say, to be around, you have to be around. And what I mean by that is a lot of times ministry is like this to where, you know, here David is, he's, he's just, they're close enough to him to hear his heart and they, take, they just take action. David never gave him a command. He never gave him an order. <clears throat> he was just sharing this desire of his heart. And these, the, the, the beauty of these three men was their heart, their alacrity, and their, their, their desire just to say, listen, this is... I heard David say this, we're going to do it. And, and I will tell you that if, if you have a desire to, to serve the Lord, and if your desire is saying, look, man, I just want to get plugged in, I want to serve, serve the Lord, this is the kind of attitude. This is the kind of, 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 of 
disposition that you need to have. Just say, look, I'm just going to be around. I'm just going to be around. I'm going to catch. I'm going to have my ears open. I'm going to have my eyes open. I'm just going to see what needs being done, and I'm going to do it. It's those people who say, God, I'm, I'm available, and I'm willing, and I, I'm going to actively be listening, looking, watching. Where is there an opportunity? Where is there an, an open door? See, because a lot of times, the, the things, that, it's kind of like your kids. You know, I, I tell dads all the time, I go, look, <clears throat> your, your kids will open up a tiny window. And we, we have this idea of, of, of quality time. And, and uh, you know, oh, if you can't spend quantity time with your kids, that's fine. Just make sure that the time you spend with them is quality. And, you know, as Steve Ferrar says in his book, that sounds great in theory. But the problem is you never know when, quantity, when quality time is going to show up. It usually happens in, in the realm of quantity time. And so I tell dads, look, you know, when you're with your kids, keep your ears open because what will happen, especially with boys is you, there'll be some random conversation and all of a sudden they'll open up a little window in their heart and then that little window is your invitation, your opportunity and if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. And, and, and it's that way in serving the Lord that, that we need to be able to just keep our eyes and our ears open and our hearts open just be able to say, God, just show me, just speak to me. Lord, I'm watching, just help me to see where you're moving, where you're working, where I can be involved. And what these guys do is so beautiful. You, you say, well, gosh, Pastor Ted, you know, yeah, they did this, and then he poured it out on the ground. Yes, it's an act of worship. This, this, this was, was a, a, a drink offering, and, and not unlike the priests, they would pour out a drink offering, and drink offering always accompanied the sacrifice. And here these men had made their sacrifice in going to the enemy and going against the enemy to take this thing. And David said, that's a sacrificial act of worship to God. And so I'm not, I'm not going to drink this. I'm, I'm going to pour this out as a drink offering to the Lord. And listen, the Bible records it, that, that that's, that's fruit to these men account. This is, a, this is a beautiful act of worship on, the, on, on these guys' part, what they, what they did there. And so, David says, far be it from me, he pours it out. Verse 18, now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Benaiah was the son of Jedidiah, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jedidiah, did, Jehoiadiah did, um, and won a name among three men. He was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. Ashael, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shema, the Herodite. Elika, the Herodite. 
Helez, the, the Palatite, uh, Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekoite, the, the that guy, uh, Abiezar, the, the Anathoathite, uh, Mabunai, the Hushatite, Zalman, the Hoatite, Mahariah, the Netophathite, yeah, that's, gosh, you guys are glad you're not me right now, Heleb, <laughs> the son of Banah, uh, the Netophathite, Ittai, the son of Ribai from Gibeah of the children of Benjamin, uh, Benaiah, uh, a Pirathonite, uh, Hidai from the brooks of Geesh, uh, Abai, Albon, the uh, Arbathite, uh, Asmaveth, the Barhumite, uh, Elihabah, <laughs> the Shalbanite of the sons of Jashin, uh, Jonathan, uh, Shema, the Herorite, uh, Ahiam, the son of Sherar, the Herorite, uh, Elphelet, the son of Ahashabai, the son of the Mahashathite, uh, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, uh, Hezrai, the Carmelite, uh, Parai, the Arabite, uh, Egal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Benai, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Bethrite, armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah, Ira, the uh, Ithrite, uh, Gerub, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite, 37 in all. Yeah. <laughs> that does not deserve an applause. Let me just... Pastor Justin sitting in the back just about to have a seizure over how I butchered that. <clears throat> okay, so I want you to notice here how some of the men listed had greater exploits um, and some had lesser exploits. And, and you notice this phrase, it shows up a couple of times, like, you know, there in verse 19, it says, hey, was, not, uh, was he, speaking of Abishai, uh, not the most honored of the three, but it says this, therefore he became their captain, however, he did not attain to the first Three, And then you look over in chapter, or in verse 23, and it's talking about Benaiah, and it says he was more honored than the 30, but he did not attain to the first three, right? And <clears throat> what does that mean? What it means is that there were guys that had these different exploits, some of them were greater than others, and oh, he did all this great stuff, but he didn't attain to the first three. He was this great, but he, he, was, he wasn't this great over here. But, but the point is, is that God honors them all, mentions them all, says they were, these were all mighty men, and they're all remarkable. Why? Because their exploits were done with great faithfulness. And what I want you to understand, in 2 Timothy, Paul, talking to Timothy, he basically said this. He said, look, if you're going to serve the Lord, you need to be a vessel of honor fit to every good work. Fit to every good work. Now, the idea is that God positions you, he positions me in situations and circumstances that are custom fit for our skill set, okay? Um, Paul put it this way to the Ephesians. He says, for we are his workmanship, 
You guys been here before, you know that that word workmanship, it means poem, it means work of art. You were God's unique poem, his unique work of art. <clears throat> and he says, that's you, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Okay, And so the idea here, and, and this is Paul's exhortation to Timothy, is look, you need to be up for every good work that God places in your path. These men were up and ready for the task. They, they all had good works that they had to do, some greater, some lesser, but all good works that God had foreordained for them to be involved in. Same applies to you. Not everything you do is going to be a great work on the face of it. It may seem like a very small, minor thing. Because you go, oh gosh, this guy killed 800 men. This guy over here just went and got a cup of water. God says, these are mighty men. And so in your life, you have to understand that sometimes the works that you do on the face of them won't seem like a great work. I think of Jesus Christ. He did great works, raised men from the dead, did incredible things, but he also did lesser works. We see him leaving the multitudes to tend to the woman at the well. We see Jesus, again, leaving the multitudes to go to Zacchaeus and say, hey man, I need to go have dinner at your house. But seemingly on the face of it, a lesser work turns into an incredible Work. Philip, he's in the midst of revival in Samaria. He started, you know, Calvary Chapel, Samaria, going off the hook, and all of a sudden God shows up and he says, Hey, I want you to leave your church and go down the road there to Gaza. It's desert. And he's like, Okay, so now he leaves this mass multitude revival, and now he's walking down through the desert, and then all of a sudden he runs into the Ethiopian eunuch who was going home from Jerusalem, just as empty as he came, reading through the scroll of, I, uh, of the prophet Isaiah, and the Holy Spirit leads Philip just to run up alongside, hey man, do you understand what you're reading? He's like, well, how, how can I understand it unless somebody explains it to me? God's like, that's me. Yeah, I, I told you to leave. I got, this, I got this work for you to do. And on the face of it, it doesn't seem like this great revival work that's happening in Samaria, but it's this great work that God, this good work that God wants him uh, to do. It's not necessarily how great your work is. It's how faithful you are to the good works that God puts in your path. That's the idea. Alan Redpath said this. He says, the day for mighty men and women, heroic men and women for God, has not ended. The triumph of the church as a whole depends upon the personal victory of every Christian. Now here's what I've discovered. What I've discovered in my life is that great works simply start as little works in disguise. For Brenda and I, when we were baby Christians and we were there in our house in Menifee looking for good Christian fellowship and a, and a healthy church and not finding it anywhere... When we started a little Bible study in our home, it wasn't a great work. It was a humble work. There was four of us. And we started it for, for selfish reasons. I'm just like, look, I, 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 I just need Christian friends. That's what I need. I just need Christians to hang out with. That I, They can spur me on. I can spur them on. I could grow in my faith. It was this little humble work. I had no idea that it would be a church of 6,500 people over time. 
God knew. And, and a lot of times what happens is that, you know, we, people, I've heard pastors in the past say, you know, God won't, he won't show you everything. He shows you the step that's right in front of you because if he showed, if he showed you everything, you couldn't handle it. And, and I always kind of, you know, question that. I'm like, you know, what do you mean you couldn't handle it? And then I thought through it from the benefit of hindsight. And I thought, you know, in the days when, you know, the church was 20 people. You know, you start off as a generalist in ministry. You do everything. You know, you've got the keys, you unlock it, you set up the chairs, you're walking around hammering the little signs in over town or, you know, turning on the lights, putting them out, and, you know, your wife is watching the kid. You know, you start doing, like, a little bit of everything. And then God adds daily to the church such as should be saved, and then all of a sudden you begin to specialize. And, and so, you know, now I used to do all this. Now I just focus on this, this handful of things. And then this handful of things becomes these two things that I'm just going to focus on. Why? Because the work gets bigger and bigger, and then you can only manage a small chunk of it. But as you manage that smaller chunk, you're just, you're, you're flourishing in your gifts. Here's where I'm going with this. A lot of times what happens is I realized if God had shown me in the days, uh, in the humble days, the days of small things, the great thing that he was going to do, I probably wouldn't have been as faithful to do those small things. Why? Because I'd be looking past that. I'd be looking longingly to the great things, and I wouldn't be there in the moment committed with all of my heart to the smaller things. The Bible says, as you're faithful in little, God will make you faithful in much. This is the heart of our Lord. And so what happens here is that, man, there's, there's this, this need for us to understand the work that I'm going to do is up to God. And whether it seems great or whether it seems small, that's God's plan. But if I'm faithful to it, however big or however how small it is, it's going to ultimately build the kingdom of God and it's going to be a, a, an accumulative work here. And, and so as we consider this, look back, and I want you to see there, uh, this first guy that's mentioned, you know, uh, Josheb Bathshebeth in verse 8. He kills 800 people. And what can we take away from that? I mean, are we, go, you know, going to kill anybody, you know, or but, whatever. But, I mean, it's impossible odds. That's the idea. This guy's faced with a situation where he's just facing impossible odds. And sometimes you're going to face impossible odds. And like this man, your job is simply to lift up your spear and trust in God. We as a church, you know, in impossible odds, we're looking now, we're in the midst of, you know, building our new church building. And God will always see to it that, you know, if, if, you're, if whatever you endeavor to do for God is something that you can pencil out, then your vision's not big enough. You know, then you sort of engineer God out of the thing. And so God has seen fit to put us as a church in a position where it, in some ways we go, man, this is impossible. How, how can we possibly do this? And yet God is in the business of having us face the impossible odds and then pulling a rabbit out of a hat because that's what God does. You look at verse 9. Again, after uh, Adino the Enzyme, Right? Uh, You've got uh, after him Eleazar, the son of Dodo, there. And it says there in verses uh, 9 and 10 
It says, uh, after him, Eleazar, the, the son of Dodo, the, uh, how, uh, the, the Haoite, was one of the three mighty men with David when they defied uh, the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. So get the picture. The, the Philistines are there, and, and, and this guy's alone, right? And it says, he arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. Listen, it says they gathered there. Gathered where? Where is it that they gathered? Well, 1 Chronicles 11 tells us that, fills in the gaps, and it basically tells us it was a place called Pass Damon. And here in this place called Pass Damon, it tells us also in 1 Chronicles what was there. What was there was just a piece of ground filled with barley. And, and First Chronicles says, tells us that, you know, here's this barley field, and here's this guy, and he takes a stand, and you go, well, gosh, what's so important about a barley field? Because they're all over the place. You know, so you, so you got this little barley field, and you've got this guy who takes his stand in the middle of the barley field, and you're like, well, what's up with that? Listen, it's harvest time. It's time to reap the fruits of their labor to receive God's provision for them. And this is what the enemy always goes after in your life and in my life. He wants to go after those areas where where God wants to provide for us, where, where it's time for us to reap the fruits of our labor. That's what the enemy attacks. That's what he goes after. He wants to steal the crops, and this is what the enemy would do. They'd take all the the barley, and then they'd set fire to the field. And it would have been so easy for these guys to go, you know what? It's a field. It's one of however many barley fields. Let them have it. Gosh, we're overrun. We're outnumbered. It's me against the world. So, so why don't I just fall back, let them take that? And listen, I'd have you maybe write this down. The defeat in our life always comes from surrendering barley fields. The defeat in our life always comes when we've got that, that, that little barley field, that, that, that piece of ground that, that, that's God's provision for us, and the enemy's attacking it, and we go, you know what? Let's cut our losses. Let's just let them have that. It's the little things that we surrender to the enemy that add up. And listen, it's in that barley field that Eliezer took his stand. And again, 1 Chronicles 11 tells us who was with him. It was he and David side by side. That's where he took his stand, right beside his king. And I just close kind of dwelling on that because, again, what's the place called? It's called Pasdamon. This is also a place that was known as Ephesdamon. The definition of that is the boundary of blood. That's what it's called. It's the boundary of blood. And no doubt it was named that because there were many battles that took place at Ephes Damon. Let me tell you, probably the most significant to our story, that's the place David killed Goliath. Was at Ephes Damon, at the the boundary of blood. And interestingly, you know, the Philistines could never advance to pass the boundary of blood. That's as far as they got. 
They got to the boundary of blood, and this is where this man took his stand and said, I'm going to fight side by side, shoulder to shoulder, with my king right here at the boundary of blood. And that's where you and I stand. We stand on blood-bought land. And our job is to take up our sword and to fight side by side with our king. And so my question for you today as we close is simply this. Have you taken your position to fight? Will you be a man? Will you be a woman who steps up to lead? Will you be a man? Will you be a woman who faithfully follows your leader, your king? They come in very small increments and they don't always look like great things. But the good thing that God places in front of you today, will you do that good thing?